Hey, welcome to North Point Online. We are glad to have you here. Uh, whether this is your first Sunday checking us out, welcome. We're glad you chose to uh, watch our service this weekend. Um, if you've been coming since 1860, we welcome you as well. It's glad We are glad to have everybody here uh, this weekend. Uh, and isn't it cool that God provided us with uh, technology that we're still able to worship Him together um, with music and messages. Um, yeah, we're not meeting in person, but it's cool that we have the technology to be able to still do church um, together. Uh, with technology in mind, if you have the app, go ahead and open that. If you don't have the app yet, go into the App Store or Google Play Store and get that downloaded. If you've successfully fended off the peer pressure um, of every week being told to download that app, let this be the week that you finally download that. Uh, when you get that downloaded, uh, open that app up and check out the Let's Connect tab. That'll take you to our virtual welcome book, and we'd love for you to check in, let us know you're here. Um, also, let us know if you've committed your life to Christ. We want to know that. That's a cool thing, um, and we can come alongside you and celebrate that moment. Uh, we're going to start worship here in just a moment uh, with Chad and Jenna, um, and the song called uh, Build My Life, and I want to read a verse real quick before we get into that worship. This comes from 1 Corinthians 3, 11. Remember there is only one foundation, the one already laid, Jesus Christ. Uh, we have uh, a foundation in Jesus Christ that we're called to build our life on and um, carry his mission to the world, a lost and starving world. Um, and we're called as individuals and as a church to carry on that mission. And that's such a cool thing to be a part of that we have the uh, calling to spread God's love, Jesus' love, and the message of forgiveness and salvation. Uh, so as we get the service started today, um, just dig into this worship, worship, dig into this time together, and uh, take it away, Chad and Jenna.
You know, 2020 didn't turn out the way anybody really thought that it would. Uh, all of us probably had plans or big things that we thought would happen. And that's probably no more true for anybody else than our high school graduates. Uh, this has been a really crazy senior year for these guys, and we wanted to love on them and honor them as much as we can. We hosted a Zoom call where uh, we got to pray together, and we got to talk about the fact that our plans may change, but God is still in control. And then my wife and I, I got to deliver some sweet treats to all of our seniors, some big uh, donuts just to give them a congratulations, because graduation is an incredible accomplishment. So what we want to do right now is we want to honor our seniors in one more way. Uh, and that's simply this, wherever you are, uh, if you happen to be around a high school graduate, maybe you want to take a second and put hands on them as, as we're just going to pray together. And we're just going to pray for this next season of their life that God would use them for incredible things. Uh, Father God, we know that this has been a, a crazy senior year, that this has been different uh, than probably anybody expected it to be, especially our graduates, God. Uh, but we also know, Father, that you're in control. We know that you have great and mighty things planned for our seniors, Lord. And so... Uh, God, as they embark on this next journey of their life, whether it's through uh, a career, whether it's through military, whether it's more education, God, whatever it may be, uh, Father, that you would bless them. God, that you would put uh, people in their life that would pour into them, that would lead them closer to you, that you would fill them full of experiences, Lord, that would help them grow as individuals uh, in the way that they view the world uh, and what they know, Father, um, and that they would continue to develop into young men and women, Lord, that would be kingdom-minded. Uh, for your hope and your gospel, God, and that your blessings would truly reign upon them, Father. We thank you for our seniors. Uh, we thank you for the accomplishments in their life. And just pray once again for your blessings on them and their families as well. We pray in Jesus' name. It still is incredibly remarkable that we can worship together remotely in all kinds of situations to be able to worship as we walk, to worship as we drive, to be able to worship in person, it's a remarkable thing. I can't wait, I, I hope that you know, um, we're looking forward to being able to worship together, many of us, next Sunday again, uh, on June the 7th for the first time at North Point, at the North Point facility uh, in person. Know this, if you're not, uh, you know, if you're not comfortable, if you're uh, especially at risk, we want you to stay home. We want you to be safe. But we've taken all kinds of, of uh, precautions to be able, in order to be able to have a safe place. Uh, we can communicate more of those things to you. We will do that this next week. But uh, know that it's going to be a safe place and that you can come and uh, it's going to be great. Um, we're at the time in worship when it's an opportunity for us to give back to God. And I want to encourage you to do that, to give, uh, to give generously, to give as God has blessed you, as he has taken care of you through this process. Um, enjoy the opportunity that you have to give. Uh, again, we're still remote, so you need to give electronically. You can do that by, by texting NCC Give to the number 77977. 77977 and that will give you an opportunity uh, to give a one-time gift to give on a recurring basis however you'd like to do that we are so grateful for the way that that uh, people have continued to give to give generously and faithfully each week uh, we want to encourage you to do that God has blessed us and we're excited about the opportunities that we have to minister during this time uh, as a result of, of your gifts 
I hope on Facebook you've been able to see uh, my conversations with the Burkitts in Ukraine, uh, with the Chanteers in Papua New Guinea, with uh, Degan Don Rutledge in southern Michigan, and with the Ube Awanshas in uh, Papua New Guinea. And, uh, and to know that God is continuing to use them even through the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And uh, know that your gifts help do that as well. I can't wait to see you again next week. I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to Chris's message this morning. Hey, North Point, uh, full confession, I'm not a sports guy. I know, I know, that comes as a shock, but Jesus says you still have to love me, so there there you are there. But because I'm not really a sports guy, uh, I'm not really competitive, uh, especially when playing sports. That kind of, I mean, I like playing sports, uh, or like I say around my house, I like to sport, but really for me, it's it's more about having a good time, which is super fun. Because it absolutely drives the uber competitive people crazy when I play sports, football, basketball, whatever it is, because I really don't care. I'm just having a good time. So because of that, I've lived most of my life really thinking that I'm just not a competitive person at all. And it really wasn't until a couple of years ago that a mentor, a friend of mine, uh, challenged my idea on that. He said, Chris, you absolutely are competitive. You're just competitive with words. Uh, you're intellectually competitive. You have to win arguments. And the funny thing about uh, his completely insane statement is that he's not wrong. Uh, I, I am competitive that way. Uh, words are important to me. They're uber important to me because words have meaning. And, and, and specific words have specific meaning. And, and those words used in certain contexts even make that even more specific. Words and the context surrounding those words become very, very, very important. Uh, I know you've seen this joke probably floating around. A, a simple statement like, let's eat, Grandma. That's very sweet, right? The grandkids are like, Grandma, let's eat. Well, well one change of word, or in this case, punctuation, and it turns incredibly dark, like, Let's eat, Grandma. I, just a simple change like that. Words are important. Punctuation's important. I say all that to say this. We're coming uh, to slowly to the conclusion of a series out of the book of Ephesians that we've called Powered. And, and just as a reminder of kind of where we've been and where we're going to head this morning, we're coming from this idea uh, out of chapter 5, verse 15, where the author of Ephesians, Paul, he says to, to live watchfully. He says, uh, make the most of the time, uh, being careful with it, uh, looking around. But this idea of watchful living, we said that spirit-filled Christians are people marked by joy, thankfulness, and mutual submission. That's what characterizes a watchful person. And then, and then Paul goes on to really talk about what those things look like in three house relationships, relationships that would have been very common to the hearer of the day, relationships they would have seen in their home all the time. We talked a couple weeks ago about this relationship of marriage and how that idea of being a spirit-filled Christian, uh, being marked by joy, thankfulness, and mutual submission plays out in marriage with the importance of love and respect. And then last week we talked about the concept of, of parenting and how that, that, that plays out with the importance of children obeying and fathers not discouraging or intentionally frustrating their kids. And today we're going to move into that third house relationship, but we immediately hit 
a problem. When we talk about marriage, we talk about raising kids or being a kid, and, and, and we look at that and we go like, okay, I, I get it. Maybe I struggle with some of that, whatever. But it's not necessarily immediately offensive. Well, this morning we hit uh, the third house relationship and we smack into a problem wall and, and immediately it could cause offense. And I absolutely love this. Like I absolutely love the problem we run into because it really forces us to deal with this thing that we call hermeneutics. Now I'm a huge hermeneutic fan and this hermeneutics word is really this, it basically means it's the set of rules that we use to interpret the Bible correctly. Hermeneutics is a simple process. Bible scholars use it all the time. It's a set of rules that we use so that we're not coming up with crazy interpretations of the scripture or that somehow we just force it, the Bible, to say what we want it to say. Rather, we have a set of rules that, that help us operate in appropriate ways. My guess is that you're probably all familiar with or you have a friend or you've read on social media somewhere. Well, the Bible says this or God told me this and they go on to describe some wild, crazy, insane thing. And you're like, I don't think God said that. Or if the Bible says that, then I'm out because like, that's super weird. And and that is always a result of those. Those crazy ideas are always caused by bad hermeneutics. Matter of fact, I'm such a passionate, passionate person on hermeneutics that I, I lead an equip group here, six week equip group, call it Bible matters. And we dig in deep to this concept of hermeneutics and what those rules are and how it plays out and how often we misuse very common Bible passages to say things that they simply didn't say uh, because we're trying to prove our own point or for whatever reason. So, so this morning, and I say all that to make this point. We have to do a little bit of hermeneutics. We have to have a little understanding of hermeneutics and do a little work with that in order to understand the next section. Now, I'm going to read it. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 9 for you uh, front of the classroom kids out there. Like you've already read it. You're already forming your opinion. I just, I'm going to read it. And I'm just going to ask you to stick with me for the next few minutes. Like when I read it, don't tune out. Don't, don't get frustrated. Don't be offended. Uh, or be offended and be frustrated, but hang with it because I think a little hermeneutics helps us understand what it's talking about. So here we are, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, uh, verse 5 rather. It says this, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So you see it right away. We, we have a couple of them, uh, a wall problem that we run up against. All of a sudden, we, we got this word slavery and master. And, and, and one of the immediate challenges that we face right off the bat is that we tend to read our own cultural experience into these biblical texts. So, so, and that's a huge no-no with good hermeneutics. We can't read our cultural experience into the text. This text was written to a specific people in a specific time for a specific purpose. And, and we tend to read our own cultural experience. So for example, right here, what we often do is we read our cultural experience of uh, uh, the atrocities of a American slavery 
into this text. And we begin to then interpret or try to make application based on that experience. See, see the, the Bible is, is, is important to understand that it doesn't talk about something. So exactly, the, the Bible doesn't talk about airplanes or democracy or Google because those things simply didn't exist. The Bible is silent on those things. So in, in a passage like this, we have to be cautious not to read our own, uh, experience or our country's experience of American slavery into this passage. Uh, It was a disgusting tactic and a horrendous practice that the pro-slavery movement pre-Civil War used scripture to try to justify the evils of American slavery. That being true, that still doesn't allow us to force our cultural experience into the text. We, We have to be incredibly cautious about pouring what we know of 19th century slavery into what Paul is talking about here. Like we have to understand what slavery meant in this context, in this time to the original hearers. So that's the first question that we really have to deal with is what was slavery in first century Roman Asian minor? Here's the second challenge that we run up against immediately and a component of hermeneutics that we have to work through, which is assuming too much from what the Bible doesn't say. So, so the assumption that somehow the Bible affirms slavery simply because it doesn't come clearly and straight out saying or denouncing slavery, so somehow then assuming that the Bible is pro-slavery because it doesn't denounce slavery, well, that's a fallacy. Simply because the Bible is quiet about something doesn't mean that it approves it. It, it, Just because the Bible doesn't talk about uh, Google or democracy, it doesn't mean that the Bible is against it. Right? We have to be cautious about that. The, the revelation of scripture and God unpacking his uh, plan for mankind over time took time. And, and, it, and it took a while. It was progressive. It didn't just all come in day one. It, it came over hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years and transforms culture over that time. For example, the, the Bible doesn't come outright and, and denounce the women's lack of voting rights in the ancient Near East, uh, but it does ascribe value and worth and equality to women all over the place, so much so that any culture, any modern culture now that has Judeo-Christian uh, roots has has packed uh, w- rights for women's voting into their governing documents. While the Bible doesn't push for that, it certainly pushes that direction. And, and so there's just the point I want to make is a caution with assuming too much from silence. See, scripture was spoken into an existing culture with all of its existing institutions, ways of operating. Some of those were good and some were not. But for the Bible to address all of that at one shot would just be impossible. So just because the Bible mentions a thing, it doesn't mean that it affirms a thing. For example... We see the practice of polygamy, having lots of wives uh, in in the scriptures all all over the place. But just because it mentions it, that doesn't mean that it affirms it, right? That practice, which is incredibly unhealthy, by the way, was just part of the, the cultural narrative that the Bible was written into. So all that to answer this question, is the Bible pro slavery? And the short answer is no. Now, if you're good with that and you just want to turn this off and skip to the song at the end, fantastic. But but let's talk through that a little bit. The simple answer to the question is the Bible pro-slavery is no. So then what is this talking about? It sure seems like Paul is saying, slaves, obey your masters. Well, uh, Paul is addressing what was 
and then was seeking to elevate it by shining the light of Christ into it. Slavery was a reality in the first century culture. So Paul addresses it because it is there. And Paul encourages slaves to obey and respect their masters at all times, not just when the masters are paying attention. Paul also places a high value on slaves by reminding them that they're not owned by their masters, but in reality by, uh, in reality by the master, by, by Jesus, the same Jesus who uh, owns all of us, uh, masters and slaves alike. Let's pause for a second and just talk about uh, slavery in that culture. There are different, were different types of slaves in that first century Greek Roman culture. Uh, there were different types. One, some of those types were destined for hard work in the mines or the gladiatorial contests. Often those were prisoners of war. There was another uh, category of slave who were heading maybe to agricultural work, although a lot of the agricultural work was done by the peasants at the time. So, so slaves moving into that would have probably been paid as low uh, wage workers and, and a caste system and all that. Um, but Paul isn't really writing to those because of who he was writing to with this book of Ephesians. The culture of Ephesus was uh, a, a little more um, intellectual, a little more uh, educated, a little more um, uh, monetarily set. And so what he's writing to, this, this house relationship, an experience that his hearers would have been very familiar with, like marriage, like parenting, was this concept of uh, house s- slaves. Uh, the Greek word is doulos, and really it could be translated and should be translated servants, or maybe bond servant. You often became a house slave or a bond servant by being born into it. Uh, sometimes it was an attempt to pay off debt, and so you would uh, attach yourself to uh, someone, to a house, and, and earn some money to pay off debt. Uh, a lot of times people chose to become house servants simply because they wanted to better their situation in life. So again, understanding first century culture uh, slavery versus uh, what our American experience was for slavery are different things. Again, the Bible is not advocating slavery or affirming it. It is just speaking into what it is. Dr. Craig Keener, who writes extensively on this topic, and there's actually an article by him uh, linked at the end of the app notes here, if you want to check that out, he says this, but Paul addressed a different kind of slavery. He wrote to urban congregations, uh, hence addressed urban, i.e. household slaves. Ancient Mediterranean household slavery was unjust, yet it differed from the slavery usually practiced in the Americas. The category slavery included high-status slaves, some of aristocratic women even married into slavery by marrying high-class slaves, thereby improving their own social status. The most powerful slaves of Caesar wielded more power than free aristocrats. More often, household slaves could earn uh, and save money on the side, sometimes buying their own freedom and sometimes even buying other slaves, sometimes even while still slaves themselves. More importantly, a significant portion of ancient household slaves became free, although partly so slaveholders wouldn't have to keep supporting them. Uh, And the former slave Holders were responsible to provide for them legal, political, and financial help. Hereditary aristocrats complained that some of these freed persons became the social climbers of their era. A guy by the name of Klein Snodgrass in the NIV application commentary adds these details. He says they did not merely do menial work, they did nearly all the work, including oversight and management of most professions. Many were educated better than their owners, they could own property, even other slaves, and were allowed to save money to buy their freedom. So Paul is speaking into the existing practice, this type of slavery. And again, while not condoning or approving, he does speak into it of how to live in that concept in a marked way differently as a Christ follower. He lays out that slaves aren't really owned or obeying 
or pleasing their earthly masters, but rather they're serving the master, Jesus, or the same master that their earthly masters are serving. In many ways, he elevates all the types of slavery and shines the light of Christ into that area of culture that really needed a deep reconsideration. And so Paul speaks into that. And all of this, this whole concept, remember, is under uh, the verse where it talks about mutual submission to one another, which would have been a revolutionary statement for the day. Not only wives submitting to husbands, but there's a mutual submission there. Not only children obeying and submitting to their parents, but there's a mutual submission there. Not only slaves submitting and obeying to masters, but a mutual submission of masters also submitting to slaves. That would have been crazy and counterculture, and Paul lays that out incredibly clearly here. Interestingly, for what it's worth, Paul also writes another letter. We have it uh, in our Bible. It's called uh, Philemon, and he encourages that person. It's a guy named Philemon. He encourages him in that letter to accept back his runaway slave named Onesimus, and he says that he accept him back no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, a brother in Christ. And so Paul does speak deeply into this issue of slavery, but he helps that culture and those people understand what does it look like to live as a Christ follower in those realities? Well, then Paul goes on to address the masters and he says, simply remember that they're also serving the same master, Jesus. So in reality, we're all equally under the headship of Christ, whether slave or master. I mean, certainly we function in different roles and responsibilities. The Bible isn't advocating socialism or, or uh, communism, but we, we don't all have the same earthly circumstances, but we all have the same value and the same worth in God's economy. So no need for threats or favoritism in the way that you deal with your slaves, but to treat those household servants the same way that you would want Jesus to treat you. So what do we do with that? We don't really, we don't live in that culture. We, we, we don't have slaves or servants. Uh, how do we unpack that? Well, here's another hermeneutic that's important. We call it the hermeneutic of principle. Uh, when there isn't a ready exact application in our modern culture of something the Bible talks about, we try and mind what's the principle behind it and how do we apply that to the closest thing in our culture today. So we look for a principle that applies. Maybe the closest thing it applies from here in our culture today is the employer-employee relationship. Now, now hear me clearly. Uh, uh, slavery, even in, in first century uh, Roman Greek culture, is, is not the same as your employer. I know some of you feel like uh, your employer is like a slave driver, but it's not. He's not, she's not, they're not. Uh, if that's the case, there's probably a 1-800 number for you to call and take care of that. But, but there is some definite application to, to our employer-employee relationship, and I think some great principles to live by. To the employee, Paul, I think, is saying this. Work hard as if your job is working for Jesus. Because in reality, it is. You're not just working for the paycheck or working to climb that corporate ladder or working for a retirement one day so you can sit on a beach in Florida and drink Mai Tais or whatever retired people do. That's uh, not what we work for. But rather, we work because we are convinced that God has put us in the place that we're in. And so we work as if we have a mission in that place because we do. We have a mission in that place. Not only work hard and, and not only like not just work for the paycheck, but treat bosses with respect right? and do what's asked of us. Even if you feel like that ask or that job is 
beneath you. Because at the end of the day, uh, there's really nothing beneath us. We're, we're all just servants. And so there isn't anything beneath us. As we willingly and mutually submit to, submit to each other, there's no job beneath us. So, so treat our bosses with respect. Do what's asked. To the employer, Paul would be saying this, treat your workers with respect. You know, they're people created in God's image, just like you are. They're people deeply loved and valued by Jesus. Jesus died on a cross, not just for employers, but for employees as well. They have worth and value, and you ought to treat them that way. This doesn't mean that you're never allowed to terminate an employee that is no longer a good fit, right? but do it in a kind and respectful way. Right? Then it probably also make your HR manager incredibly happy. Treat employees with respect, right? No need to be harsh. No need to be threatening. There's just no need to be a jerk, right? If God has put you in a position of authority in your workplace, there's no need to lord that over others, but rather use that as an opportunity to speak into the culture and the lives of the people around you. Be a great boss, right? Even if those employees are maybe low on the org chart. Right? We're all children of God. We're all equal in God's eyes. Ultimately, we all serve the same big boss. So maybe here's the take home. Right? Living in these ways, whether as a slave or a master, an employee or an employer, like it demonstrates character. When you live out this relationship, the way that Paul lays it out in scripture, the, the idea of submitting and obeying and treating with respect and not threatening. When we live like that, you become a person of character, right? And character matters because it's incredibly counterculture. Working for the pleasure of Christ and not just your own gain, that speaks loudly. Treating others with respect and deference, that's not normal. And being a boss who is kind and supportive instead of cold and demanding, that makes people stop. Take a double look. Say things like, I'd do anything for that guy. I work hard for that gal. I'll work overtime or come in late. So the power of character, God-driven, Christ-like living, beliefs and actions that stem from following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, being committed to the mission of Jesus, that kind of character is powerful and is a billboard to a watching world. There is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes.